Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom, and welcome, 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 everybody. Hey, welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from southwest Louisiana. It is a very, very interesting time, and I am so glad to be with all of you, whether you're listening on Hebrew Nation online, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Sunday, uh, or whether you're listening to this in the archives on the Hebrew Nation site or on YouTube or on our website at outofashesministries.org or wherever you may be and wherever you may be listening from, hey, it's really great to be with you all today. Uh, if it's your first time listening, I just want to say welcome to the show and I hope that you find the conversation thought-provoking and uh, and uh, question provoking, I guess, and uh, just want to say this is this is a a cool place to hang out as uh, we discuss some different things in the Bible that we may have never looked at before, or looked at things looking at things differently than we've looked at them before, uh, and applying them and bringing them them into our world and seeing what are the implications uh, of these things. And so we deal with some difficult stuff sometimes and uh, some sensitive stuff sometimes, but I think it's all good. Um, if you're a regular listener, then hey, welcome back. It's great to have you guys always. I love, love, love the community that's being built around um, the IBR show and just what you guys mean to us. I hope we express it enough, but truly, truly thankful and uh, appreciate you guys very much. Um, for those of you that don't know, or just let me put out the invite as I always do, I'm the pastor out of Ashes Ministries uh, in DeRitter, Louisiana. So Louisiana is shaped like a boot, right? And uh, we are right about where the ankle would be. So uh, we're uh, southwest Louisiana, and if you're listening to this and somehow you're in the area, uh, in the region, we have folks that drive in from up to two hours away. And uh, so if you're in the area or in the region, I'd love to invite you to come hang out with us on a Shabbat. Uh, we have services every Shabbat morning at 10 a.m. Central. Uh, and if you're not in the area, we also stream those services every week. Uh, we stream to Facebook, to YouTube, and to our website as well. And our handy-dandy little mobile app, you can find the Share Faith app, and you can search Out of Ashes Ministries there and pull us up. And uh, so we'd love to connect with you. If you're looking for a fellowship, uh, because you just don't have fellowship around you, or if maybe your fellowship meets at a different time and you're looking for some uh, somewhere to spend Shabbat, you know, or just get a different kind of flavor of things, we love, love, love to have you and uh, just pop in and say hey and tell us where you're from. That would be super, super duper cool. So just thank you everybody for all that you uh, that you contribute to us and uh, the relationships and the the community that's growing is absolutely fantastic. So with all that out of the way, let's say a quick prayer and go to the Father before we jump into today's episode. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in heaven, we bless you and we thank you so much for this opportunity to, uh, to come together and to discuss the most important thing to us, and that is your word. Father, we pray that you speak to us and show us how to bear your image better in the world around us. Amen. 
right, so in today's episode, we're going to kind of step back from the gospel. So let's just do a quick recap of where we have been, and then we'll jump into what I want to discuss today and what I want to share with, with you all today. Uh, so we have been on a, a long track. I think this is episode 40. It's episode 40 something. I don't know. Don't get me lying. Uh, it's episode 40 something. And, uh, we have been in our, uh, fellowship services and our local congregation. Uh, we started, I think last October ish, some right after, uh, Sukkot, I believe last year. And, uh, we have began in Genesis in Bereshit and we have worked our way through to the gospels. And uh, we've taken some interesting turns. We looked at creation really heavily and uh, kind of drew some themes, some biblical themes from creation. And uh, we carried that through the, the wilderness, the exodus and the wilderness and through the Torah and uh, talked about lessons in the desert. Uh, and then we, we did kind of high step and cut through the prophets pretty quickly because we'll be going to back, back to some of those in later episodes. Uh, and then we landed ourselves right in the middle of the intertestamental period, uh, what is commonly called the silent years, or in my tradition was known as the silent years. Uh, and we looked at just some of the things that were going on, especially the introduction of Hellenism. And uh, so if, you're, if you've ever heard the term Hellenistic Jews or Hellenism and you're not real sure what that is, uh, then I would encourage you to go check out those episodes because they're a lot of fun. And um, we looked at not only the introduction of Hellenism, but the Jewish responses to Hellenism. And uh, so the, those are just, I love those conversations. I could have those conversations all day because they give so much context and so much light to uh, the Gospels. And that's, that's the, you know, that's the, the deal. Uh, and so the last four episodes, we have kind of taken a flyover view, kind of a 30,000 foot view of the four different Gospel accounts and uh, talked about authority of the author and all of those things. And uh, so I hope you found those helpful and maybe a little, like I said, a little challenging. Hopefully maybe when you read through the gospel accounts again, you'll keep some of those things in mind. And uh, so that's kind of where we are. We're going to, next week, we're going to begin uh, our kind of trek through the gospels, uh, especially through using the book of Matthew. And uh, we'll draw from some of the other gospels as well as a kind of comparative study, but mostly we're going to use Matthew as uh, the gospel that we use, the gospel account that we use to walk through uh, as we look at the teachings and the life of Yeshua, our Messiah. So that's kind of where we have been. Um, this week, though, I thought I wanted to just kind of step back from that, and I wanted to discuss kind of modern events, what's going on in our world, what's happening um, in in our world, especially it, we're in America, so kind of from a uh, an American uh, viewpoint, uh, and and just kind of have a conversation and give some thoughts, and uh, you know maybe maybe challenge us a little bit in a in a few different ways. So. Um, one of the interesting things that, you know, we say all the time, and I, I've, I say it on this podcast, on this radio show, I've said it before, I'll probably continue to say it, is that one of the things that we say often is like, well, we don't like to get political here. You know, we don't, get, we don't do politics here. We don't get political here. And uh, I have a good friend of mine uh, named Jeff Morton. Some of you will know Jeff. Um, and he challenges me on that, not like directly, personally, but by the way he lives his life and by the way that he, uh, the things that he values and the, the way he sees uh, kingdom, uh, kingdom of God, Bible, all these things, 
uh, he his outlook really challenges me on that idea um, that you know we don't we don't do politics here we don't talk about politics here and so I'm bringing some balance kind of to my own way of seeing things I have other you know good friends that uh, that are very involved in the political world and, and things and uh, it really has challenged my outlook to say you know to it's it's easy and it's comfortable I guess it's safe to say that well religion is something separate from politics. Um, religion is something altogether different and, you know, never the twain shall meet. Um, and, you know, we bring in, you know, constitution, the separation of church and power, actually not the constitution, but other documents, the separation of, of church and state and, and all these different things. And this idea that, that politics are separate from, from faith or from religion, um, a pastor that I used to serve under, you know, used to always talk about the, the idea of the separation of church and state was not to, uh, not to keep the, uh, you know, was to keep the, the state out of the church, not to keep the church out of the state. Um, and I, I think that's really interesting, and I, I really like that, you know, the way he, he framed that. But I want to just kind of address this whole thing about, about God and politics. And think about it in a way as kind of where we've come from today or, or where, we've, where we've come to today in our, in our Image Bears Radio podcast, right? So we just kind of did a quick, like, you know, two-minute synopsis of where we've been. But we've covered a lot of ground. I mean, we've covered the entire Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, and, you know, we're already in the Gospels in, in just, you know, a little, little under a year. Uh, and so we've covered a whole lot of ground, and we have missed a lot of stuff. Uh, we've skipped a lot of stuff that we'll come back to. But I, I want to kind of revisit the idea of, of the beginning and the, the idea of, of Adam and Eve. And if you've listened to those earlier podcasts, you know that we took kind of the work of Dr. John Walton, and uh, and not only Dr. Walton, but but many scholars who are seeing these things in Genesis and and mining Genesis for these these concepts and these themes. Um, that that Genesis one and two is is not a scientific account of creation. Um, very very convincing evidence. Um, that it's you know it's not the biology of human beings. It's not even necessarily a chronology as far as how old the Earth is, and and all of these different kinds of things that we have sought. We've sought these answers from Genesis, but Genesis one and two really is not giving. It's not set up to give us those answers. We're asking questions that the text is not uh, is not designed to answer. And I know this can be, like, if you haven't listened to those episodes, please don't turn me off yet. I'm not a heretic, I promise. Uh, but these these things are, you know, we have creation science, which is like a thing. Um, and, and all because we're looking for answers that the text, in my opinion, and the opinion of Dr. Dr. Walton, is is not designed to give. It wasn't written for for that. So, So what do we have? In Genesis one and two, especially, well, we have two creation accounts, right? And and we've tried to harmonize those, and we've tried to, you know, we've tried to say, well, chapter two is, you know, more detailed of day six, and and all these different different kinds of things. But there's, you know, science has helped us a lot. And I know science can be a scary thing for people of faith for some reason, um, like it threatens the validity of the Bible or or whatever. And and if it threatens the validity of the Bible, it may be may very well be because we've just simply like I said before, we've asked the Bible for answers that the biblical writers and the biblical authors 
um, in their time, in their, you know, in their location, uh, geographically, they just, they're not questions that they were concerned with. You know, there was no such thing as the periodic table uh, when Moshe Rabbeinu or whoever you would like to credit with Genesis wrote Genesis. Uh, even if you believe it was written, you know, during Babylon, exilic Babylon or, or post-Babylon. They're, they're just not, they're just at a different place, and they're not asking these same questions that we Westerners want to know today. They're not a scientific culture as far as, 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 as far as we know it, and, and how, and how we are. So there's, there's other things going on. So we know science has helped us a lot. We know that archaeology has helped us a ton. And it can be pretty challenging, but archaeology has helped us a lot. We have, you know, we, I say we like I have done any of this. I haven't done any of this. But, you know, archaeologists, scientists, scholars have found, um, you know, creation stories, creation myths, uh, they're called, from other cultures that when you date them, they actually predate the, writing, uh, the writings that we have in Genesis. Now, maybe because original copies don't exist and all those caveats, right? I, I get it. But they are very, very, very old creation myths. Now, when I use the word myth, um, when, we, when we talk about myth in English, we generally think about something that's not true, right? Um, so-and-so, you know, told the myth of whatever. Well, it's not a true story. And that's the definition that we default to. But, but in, a, in a linguistic standpoint and from a scholastic standpoint, a myth is just, is just a, a way to, to – it's a, a label to say that this is the way they're trying to explain the, the happenings in our time. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, we are a very scientific culture, uh, especially Americans are a very scientific culture today. So science, in a way – um, could be considered a myth because it's a system that's trying to explain the world around us. Um, and so we have several creation myths um, that are, are very, very, very old. One of the most popular of those, and we've talked about this in the other episodes, uh, is uh, Enuma Elish, uh, which is the Babylonian, uh, ex- uh, Babylonian creation myth. Sorry, I'm trying to get my words in the right order. Um, and Enuma Elish, uh, Enuma Elish means um, when upon high. Uh, and so it's kind of like the same thing as in the beginning, right? That kind of idea. Um, Enuma Elish, basically um, uh, Marduk uh, kills Tiamat and forms the earth with her dead corpse. Is, is, it's a long story, right? And it's fragmented and all. But that's kind of the main, that's kind of the, the apex. That's how the world came to be created. So if we think about uh, the, the, the biblical creation story, if you, if you think about the Babylonian myth, um, and you think about that story, and you think that's all this divine violence, and there's all this chaos, and this back and forth, and um, these gods or demigods are killing each other, and like there's all this, there's war, and it's cosmic, you know, brutality, and all this stuff. And if that's the 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 myth or the explanation of creation and the world as it is, um, subsequent to creation, if that's your understanding of it and the way you explain it, then when you read Genesis one and two. It is radically different. I mean, it may follow the, some of the same form and have some of the same ideas because the time period is similar, uh, and we write in we write similarly in the you know in the 1700s. Everybody kind of wrote in the same uh, general you know. It's different than the, the way we write today, it just by uh, by eras or by time periods. And but it but the message is radically different. The fact that there is one creator. 
and that he is in control of all. There is no cosmic fighting. There's no, there's none of this cosmic warfare, but that he is the creator of all and he created things that are good, that are tov, um, out of the tohu vevohu, the, the wild and waste, right? He creates a, a creation that is good. And it is very good. It is tov me'od. It's very good. Compare that to Enuma Elish. Compare that to you know some of these other uh, uh, creation myths. And there's a stark contrast in who our God is, number one, who is God. Number two, who are we as a part of God's creation? And number three, what is the state of creation, period, right? And so just major differences, very subversive, especially if you are, uh, if you are a Jew who is living in Babylon at the time of the exile, right? If you're a Jewish child that grows up in, in the Babylonian culture and, and what you know as the, the way the world came to be is this violence and this chaos and all this kind of stuff, it is much, it's a much different story. It's a much different message than, then, um, you know, better sheep are the, the beginning of our book. And, and so this, this whole thing about, um, you know, about what creation is and what the creation story is in Genesis one and two is, is, is very, we can look at it in a very different way and get, uh, I, th- I think a more beautiful and, and deeper message from it. Now, moving on to, to better sheet two, where you have Adam and Hava, um, my position, and I, and I have very good friends that are, believe me, much, much smarter than I am, and I respect them very much, and I respect their opinions. Uh, but for me, the, the way it's, it's most helpful for me is day six of, of Genesis 1 is, is Hashem creating humanity at large, uh, populations of humanity, just like he did populations of birds and populations of fish and populations of insects and all these kinds of things that come to be about on the earth. And so day six is humanity as a whole. Um, when we move to Bereshit 2, we move to Genesis 2, you have this formation, uh, or as Dr. Walton puts it, I'm going to paraphrase him because I'm, I'm not smart enough to quote him directly, but um, Adam is, when the word, use the word create, it's more of the idea not of creating in a physical sense, in an anatomical and biological sense, it is creating as in um, uh, appointing him, uh, an- anointing him, appointing him, uh, placing, uh, placing a title on him and a responsibility on him. So the idea is that very possibly um, that, that there's, there's an existing human, humanity, right, an existing population of humans, and Hashem calls Adam, this man, Adam, out of that existing population and sets him up as Hashem's royal king and priest to, um, to take care of sacred space, the Garden of Eden, the place where, where heaven and earth meet, the place where God dwells, and that interface between heaven and earth. And so he sets Adam up to be the, the keeper. He said, you will uh, avod v'shamar, right? You will serve and keep or serve and guard. Uh, that was Adam's uh, that was Adam's job. That was the function that was given to him. And so when we think about um, those terms, avod v'shamar, um, the, the main place that they show up again in Tanakh is having to deal with the priests. The priests' job were to avod v'shamar, 
the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and then later the Beit HaMikdash, the holy temple. And so we see Adam having this priestly role um, very evidently, I think, and I don't, I don't think it's a far jump to, to, to make that, to make that understanding. And then also you have this idea of in the ancient world, you know, gardens and, and all these kinds of things, um, were places where kings lived. Kings would go out and conquer other area, other, you know, cultures and they would bring back, uh, trees generally and plants from those other areas and plant them in their own garden so they could look at their garden or when other people visited they could they could take them around and show them all of these exotic plants and things as a sign of their dominance and as a sign of how they've spread their kingdom out so adam and hava adam and hava have this both very kingly role and very priestly role um and i think just in the very beginning of scripture we are confronted with this idea that you really can't separate um, theology or I'm not even sure how exactly to, you know, what's the best way to classify, but we, we really cannot separate um, faith and what we call politics. Um, if the, if the first, the, the story opens with this man named Adam and he's given a kingly role. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's political. <laughs> that, that is, that's very much political. Um, and then we, you know, we, we go through the, the story of Noah. We go through the Valley of Shinar with the Tower of Babel and these, these ideas of building the, you know, this tower to God, this ziggurat, and then this tower on top, uh, and, and all of these things, these are, um, these are very much, um, full of, of meaning as far as, as, as governance goes, right? These are kind of governmental moves in in one sense, if we're going to look at it kind of through that lens. And then we come to a man named Avram. Now, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of study on Avram's background. And uh, the the point I, I really just want to jump to real quick, and then we'll kind of fill in the blanks. Um, the The point about Avram that I really want to make, that I really want to get to, is the fact that we we tend to think, and this may not be you, so if it's not, just kind of understand where I'm coming from. For me, um, Avram was always kind of this um, this this kind of you know wayfarer, kind of not wayfarer, I guess is not right, kind of nomad. Um, you know, really, even though the Bible tells us he was blessed, he was blessed. He had all these slaves and all these people and all this stuff. I, the image I always had in my head was just kind of like this this ragtag group of, of, of people um, that were subservient to everybody else. Like Abraham, he was promised that he was going to be a nation, but he wasn't a nation. Like he was just, he was just some guy that lived in tents out in the desert. And, um, you know, just kind of, like I said, subservient to everybody around him. You have these big, uh, you know, powerful nations like Canaan and, and all these different, you know, you have, a, you have Shinar, which is Babylon. You have all of these diff- these big powerful nations. And Avram's just kind of this little, you know, group of nomads that are, that are trying to kind of, you know, weave their way through all these big, big nations. And I really want to challenge that because I've been challenged by that. Um, I think it's Jewish history that tells us, Jewish Midrash, um, that tells us that Avraham's father, Terah, was high priest of the, in the courts of Chaldee, uh, of the Chaldees, of Chaldea. And so this, so Avram very likely came from a, a royal court, a royal family, if you will, um, which, which begins to change the, turn the diamond on the story a little bit. 
And, and if he comes from that, he understands that world of royalty. So the difference in being Avram comes as just this unknown guy. Avram's just like, you know, some random guy that, that Hashem picks out of the, you know, mass of humanity to this idea that, no, he's, he's, of, he, he's of royal stock in a sense, and he understands, he understands kingdoms, he understands governmental movements, he understands politics, he understands diplomacy, because this is his world. Um, add to that that Jewish tradition also tells us that he was brought up and trained by Shem, who they believe is Melchizedek. So many layers to this stuff. So we'll continue talking about Avram on the other side of the break. Stick around. Welcome back. So, uh, yeah, talking about Avram. So, again, if you know much about you know Jewish tradition, uh, and uh, Jewish tradition says that uh, that sh- that Melchizedek, Melchizedek, uh, or Melchizedek, however you want to pronounce it, that we see in Genesis um, is actually Shem, right? Noah's oldest son, Shem. Um, we're told in the story of Noah that uh, Shem and Japhet uh, cover Noah. And it's important to know just that when when two people are named like that for a for an act, the older the the first that is named, not the older, excuse me, the first that is named is given credit. So, um, it, it so so Shem and Yafet do this this righteous act right to cover Noah, and uh, it's Shem that gets the credit. So if we were standing around and we were listening to their conversation. It would be like, you know, they, they know what Ham has done, and Shem looks at his brother and says, we, we really need to do this. And Yafet says, uh, yeah, good call, let's, let's do it. So Shem gets the credit. So he, in, in, in Jewish tradition, he is very, he is the, he's the Zadik of that generation. He's the very righteous, takes that mantle from Noah. And so Avram in, in Jewish tradition is, is trained in a yeshiva. Basically, Shem starts a yeshiva, which is a more of a modern Jewish you know, term and things. But, but putting the story together, um, he's trained by Shem. And so you have this idea of, of this, which Shem is the king of Jerusalem, right? The king of Salem is Jerusalem. And so you have all this royalty stuff. And whether or not you give credence to the Jewish understanding is not my point. I really don't care. What, I'm, what I want to challenge in us is this idea that, that even Avraham, even Avraham, many of us, and maybe, you know, in, in a Christian background or understanding, may have thought of him like I kind of explained. You know, like this, this kind of, you know, nomad, you know, doesn't have a lot or whatever, has a little bit, but he's not a nation. Like, he's not an empire. Um, he's just a family, you know, and, 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 a, and considering a small family at that compared to nations. But I want to challenge that and say that like, this, this Avram character, when he comes out of Ur Chastim, Ur of the Chaldees, when he comes out and starts going through the land of Canaan, he is already a force to be reckoned with. He is already seen by the nations around him very likely as a king. 
you may have never heard that before. And just even to me, like it's still just exciting and, and fresh to even think about it that way. When he goes down to Egypt, here's, here's kind of the first place that I caught this. When he goes down to Egypt and he takes Sarah, right? Uh, this was to Parshago. When he takes Sarah down to Egypt, I think it was two, or maybe it was more than that. Don't quote me. Um, and Pharaoh finds, takes a liking to Sarah, right? So there's a lot of stuff in here, but just think about if Avram is just this, he's just this desperate, uh, you know, pilgrim that is, is just looking for, for some food, right? Let's just say he's just, he's that, that desperate old nomad, you know, that desperate shepherd, uh, that has a, a big family and he can't feed them all. And so he goes, if, if Pharaoh takes a liking to his wife and he is a, basically a nobody, then, then what does Pharaoh do with Sarah? M- my argument is that he just takes her, like, who cares about Abram, about Avram? Like, who cares? He's just some shepherd. I'm just going to take her. I want her. I'm just going to take her. But the fact that they have this, this interaction, this negotiation and all this stuff proves to me in some sense that Avram is a man of standing. He is a, he's a dignitary. He is at least at some level respected by Pharaoh enough to even have an audience with him. I hope that makes sense. So we, you know, we go through Avram's life and he continues to amass people and, and wealth and all these different kinds of things. Um, of course, we know he has Lot with him or Lot with him. Um, he goes to this battle, right, in the, the Valley of the Kings. He goes to this battle and there's five kings on one side and four kings on another side. And, and Abraham wipes the floor with them. He, he totally kicks behind. Right. How in the world? Granted, these are not like, you know, these are not massive nations. Right. These, this is not millions of soldiers. This is, you know, maybe a few thousand, um, maybe, you know, several hundred. These are not absolutely massive civilizations. They're they're small tribal, you know, nations. In, in our term of nation, we don't you know, we think about a little smaller. And so Abraham, Abraham comes out and he comes out on top. He just absolutely cleans house with these guys. And so to be a, just a wandering nomad, right? A, a desperate shepherd and to be able to, to have that kind of military understanding and that, and those kinds of things. And I know we can spiritualize all this and say, well, you know, Hashem was with him and, and, you know, and God led him and God spoke to him and, and said, yeah, and all that's true. Absolutely. Um, he, you know, all those things are true. But just to say on a, on a, you know, on a, uh, to think about him this way is to think about him radically different than I have, I ever have before. And it's been really, really encouraging and, and yet really challenging for me. And so he's this, he's this, he's the top dog, right? He's the, t- he's the king of kings in this sense. He is the top dog. And then we get to, um, last week's Parsha, uh, Chaye Sarah, and we read in the opening verses about Sarah's death and, and, you know, the, the, um, the land uh, and the cave of Machpelah and, and that whole thing. But there's a verse in here that stuck out to me this year when I was reading it. And um, it's, it's in verse 7, chapter 23 of Bereshit of Genesis, verse 7. It says, and, uh, so he's, you know, he goes and he asks, and, and um, I'm sorry, it's verse 5, actually. Let's just read from verse 1. <laughs> that way we cover it all. So it says, uh, Sarah's lifetime was 100 years, 20 years, and 7 years, 127, the years of Sarah's life. 
And Sarah died in uh, Kiriat Arba, uh, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to eulogize Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham arose from the presence of his dead, and he spoke to the children of Het, saying, I'm an alien and resident among you. Grant me an estate for a burial site with you that I may bury my dead from before me. So he is an alien, right? He doesn't, this is not his people. And verse five, listen to this. And the children of Het answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, which is a term of respect. But listen to this. You are a prince of God in our midst. You are a prince of God in our midst. In the choicest of our burial places, bury your dead. Any of us will not withhold his burial place from you from burying your dead. Then Abraham rose up and bowed to the members of the council, to the children of Het. So this idea that you are a you are a prince of God among us, that's a big deal. And and we again we can spiritualize this and we can make it really, you know, really mushy gushy, emotional, spiritual. We can make it all those things. And and that's not to say that the Spirit of God was not with Abraham and that that um you know God didn't favor him. Yes, of course, all of those things are absolutely true. But from a practical level, this this guy is a king. <laughs> he is a king, and he also exhibits the priestly functions like we saw in Adam. Right? He he's giving he's building altars. He's meeting with God under trees, which are very very symbolic in ancient uh, in ancient culture and in ancient myth. Um, he's meeting on mountaintops. I mean, he's doing all this priestly stuff, and so. The, the the scripture and then we we move from Bereshit into uh you know into Joseph's life and Joseph is you know gets hooked up with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is that's political. I mean these are you know again we over spiritualize these things and I think we've done a disservice to ourselves and to the way we see the world and how we see God working in the world because maybe we've been so over uh over spiritual and not kind of really I in my tradition, we'd call it kind of carnal, you know, I guess, kind of carnal, and look, just looking at it from an earthly perspective. Joseph gets to be second in command of all of Egypt. That's a political office, ladies and gentlemen. That's a, that's a political office. And everything that comes with politics, the things that we have that we're dealing with in politics today are not anything new. They're absolutely not. Technology is about the only thing that has changed. But the, 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 the thirst for power, the, the two opposing views or three opposing views or 17 opposing views or whatever, and people fighting for control of, of the culture and to shape the culture in their view is absolutely nothing new. It has been since, since the beginning of creation, since the beginning that, that men began to rule this earth. So we, we have Joseph, and then we move through a whole section called the Judges, well, well, we have the Exodus, right? We have the Exodus, um, of course. But even in the Exodus, and as as the the children of Israel are, are wandering in the wilderness and then take over, they they have these. They, God says, "Set up judges," right? Jethro says, "Set up judges, J- judges." Hello, that's that's political system. Then we have a whole section of the judges, and then we have a whole section of the kings, right? And then there is this exile. And this conquering by another nation or two nations, the kingdom splits under uh, under Shlomo. After Shlomo, the kingdom splits, and you have Assyria and Babylon coming in and, and taking uh, different parts of Israel into exile. 
this is all political. It's all political. Again, I, there, is a, there is a very, you know, of course, the reality is spiritual. But we cannot overlook the, the pragmatic and the, the what's here on earth and just over-spiritualize everything. Um, and so all this is political, all of it. When Yeshua, when Yeshua comes on the scene, right? And, and I mean, King David, we even talk about King David, uh, the, the prophets, right? The Nevi'im, they all talk about when, when God establishes his kingdom, right? When the, when the king returns, when it, that's, who do you, what do we think the king is? Do we think the king is some preacher in a suit and tie? I mean, do we think the king is some, you know, some guy in a white robe with angel, little angel wings? I mean, what do we think? The, the king that is promised is a, is a man, is a human, he's a, he, you know, he's, you, he's divine, absolutely, um, you know, according to those scriptures, but he's, he's a, a flesh and blood person as well. I mean, there's a, there's a very practical political agenda that is at work here. And, and so when Yeshua arrives on the scene, when he comes in, how is he, I mean, think about all the, the different openings and, and, and the, the early um, you know, descriptions of Yeshua. Well, we're told that, you know, it was the time of King Herod. Well, why would they put it in the time of King Herod? Because politics matter. Because politics are important. The way that politics shapes time and culture and all the things, those are used as, as markers in history. In the prophets, in so-and-so, the year King Uzziah died, right? That's that's all. It's just like say in 2020, in the you know in the such and such election, blah blah blah, whatever. Th- this in the seventh year of Obama's presidency. This is what this is you know in the third year of Trump's president. Th- this is it's everything is gauged by the politics of the time, and God working in that, in that, not separate from that, not not over and above or not behind. You know, working in that. That's what's the powerful thing. And so Yeshua's, you know, even his, his birth, his, his arrival, his, his life, his death is all surrounded by politics. It's all surrounded by politics. It's, it's, it's crazy. And so the, the Bible is a political book. The Bible is a very political book. And, and, and I, I believe, and I'm becoming more convinced that the Bible's message is, is to rulers, to leaders, because, and I've said this before, but I think this is a good, a good place to kind of repeat it, that you very, matter of fact, I don't even, there's maybe a couple of times, but I don't, I don't even know that I could come up with one right now in, uh, in let's say, the, the writings or, or the Torah, or just the whole Tanakh. There may be a handful of times where, um, where Hashem judges an, an average Israelite, like just a farmer or a shepherd or an old grandma that's like just making challah on Shabbat or what, you know, before Shabbat or whatever. I don't know of a, I don't, can't come to, nothing comes to mind right now anywhere in the Tanakh where Hashem judges an average Israelite that's just doing their best following the leadership of the king or the priest or whatever and just doing their best to live their life before God. I don't think it ever happens. If it does, I would love for you to comment or to to email me or whatever and, and tell me where. If it does happen, it's extremely far and few between, maybe a handful in all of Tanakh. But who do the prophets speak to? Who in the wilderness, right? In the wilderness, 
who is who is who gets in trouble in the wilderness? Well, the whole nation does, right? Because they rebel. But I'm thinking of people like Korah, right? Korah's not an average Israelite. He's a priest. <laughs> He's leadership in the in the Tanakh in the, in the Nevi'im in the prophets. Who were the prophets prophesying to? They are prophesying to the leadership for the sake of the people. As the leaders go, so will the nation go. The, the, all of this, all of this is to. It, it's about leadership. So I think the Bible um, is it, God's intent in Scripture is to teach leaders how to rule well. And man, have we gotten away from that? Holy smokes! You know, municipal level, state level. National level, you know, global level, where, however you want to say it, we've gotten away from that. But also, it's the, the the scripture is so incredible because it also speaks to us as the average people, as the body of Messiah. As when I say average, I don't mean like we're not special. I mean just we're not, you know, we're not governors and presidents and kings and and queens and all those things. I mean we're just we're you know we're the populace, we're the nation, we're the the body. It does tell us how to live within those means. It does tell us that God is with us no matter what kind of king we have, no matter what kind of ruler, no matter what kind of system, no matter what kind of oppression, no matter what kind of ostracization, or, that's not even a word, whatever. No matter what kind of, of, of heat we, we're taking or persecution we're taking or, or oppression that we're under, the Bible speaks to us about how to live well in that moment, not, not, not because of any other reason, but because God is with us in that moment. God is not separate from our political state. He is in, he is with us. He is there. He is here in the chaos of America's political issues. Hashem, Emmanuel, Messiah, and the spirit of God is with us in this time. He's not trying to do something separate and apart from the, from the leadership that we have. Do, does he want to turn our leaders' hearts towards him? Absolutely. Absolutely he does. But how do we live it within, while we're in it? How, how do we live life and how do we represent God well and how do we bear his image as a people, as, a, as the body, as the kingdom of, of heaven? How do we do that well? I think our Bible tells us. Because God is not separate and apart from this this thing. He didn't set up politics. I mean, the, the New Testament, the you know, newer testament, whatever you want to call it, it, it even tells us that you know that God he he puts leaders in charge. He's the one who puts them there, and he also says in Scripture that my the king's heart is in my hand. I turn it which way I want it. It's not that God is trying to subvert the kingdoms of this earth. He's trying to teach us how to live within them and maybe even live subversively in them. So in the last few minutes, I want to talk about where is God in politics? And, and not so much as, I guess, in addition to where is God in politics, where is God as we, are, um, as we have to deal with the ramifications of our politics? That's a really wordy way to say that, but... Where is God with us? There's a really interesting kind of theme and pattern that happens in in the the fir, in the book of Genesis. And I keep I keep going back to Genesis, and I said this when we were beginning our uh, our Genesis study. Uh, I remember Brad Scott, a blessed memory. I remember one of the earliest videos I ever watched of him. This would have been I don't know, fifteen, seven, sixteen years ago, fourteen, fifteen years ago. 
And I remember him, you know, Brad was very much of the, you know, of the, of the opinion, and I agree, that the whole story of, the, of Scripture could be told in the first four to six chapters of Genesis. And that it was the seedbed for everything that you would ever read in Scripture, all the way to Revelation. And I remember hearing Brad talk about how, you know, he'd spent, you know, 20, 30 40 years studying the first, you know, six chapters of Genesis. And, and I remember just thinking like, how in the world, how in the world do you spend that much time in six chapters or four chapters? Like, how is that possible? You, don't you get bored? <laughs> kind of once you, you know, after a couple of years, you probably got it. Like, move on. And the, the brilliance of, of Brad's thinking and the way he thought about things, and I, I get it now. I go back to Genesis because every time you read through Genesis, something new should surprise you. Something, there's something there that you missed. So what's really interesting in, in Genesis, we'll just take up to, you know, we'll take through Joseph's life. If this is, uh, you know, a political story, or not a political, but if, you know, if, if politics are, are one of the main themes driving biblical narrative, God, be, God speaks a lot, right, in the first chapter, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. And then he speaks a lot to Adam, right? He speaks a lot, he walks with him in the cool of the day, well, Adam, where are you? He speaks a lot to Adam. Keep going. He speaks a lot to Abraham. He's always talking to Abraham, you know, messengers and God giving blessing and and just I mean, he's you know, he's talking to Abraham a, a lot. We go to Isaac, to Yitzhak. God begins to speak a little less. Read, read, read through Isaac's life. We're actually going to be in it um, in the next couple of parshot. Read through Isaac's life. God's voice is less prominent. And then Yaakov, read through Jacob's life. God's voice is even less prominent. And what I would encourage you to do is go through those stories and count the number of times that God speaks, that Hashem speaks, less prominent even through Jacob's life. And then we get to Joseph. I haven't, I didn't read this again, like to refresh my memory, but just from memory, because I've read the story of Joseph a lot. Just from memory, I don't think that God speaks one time in the story of Joseph. Now, God is evoked, you know, and, and God is, is definitely, and, and what I mean, when I'm saying that God doesn't speak, I'm not saying that God is not involved. God is absolutely involved. But the text does not tell us that he's actively speaking, directing, giving command, you know, giving vision, giving direction. The story of Joseph as I've begun to think about it these last couple of weeks, the story of Joseph is, again, not that God is not there, but in the absence of clear direction from God, in the absence of God's voice being ever present and like that audible bang, 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 every moment God is speaking, what do we do? Joseph rode the second in command of a foreign nation. How is that possible? How is that possible in the, in the absence of the voice of God? the active, audible, directive voice of God. How is it that Joseph rises to second in command of a foreign nation? One word, wisdom. Wisdom. 
Joseph starts out as kind of a punk, right? <laughs> he starts out as kind of a punk. But we see by the end of Joseph li- Joseph's life how much he has grown, grown in stature with God and man, how much he has, he has grown, he's matured, right? He is a man of wisdom. It doesn't mean that God is not there and God is not working. God is the source of wisdom. So it's all still about God. It's all still about Hashem. He is still the major player. But the responsibility is on Joseph to learn and grow and to utilize that wisdom to be a force. The book of Proverbs, right? God doesn't speak at all in the book of Proverbs, and yet it is the book of wisdom. And so I want to wrap this up real quick, just to say that in this time where, where it's all political chaos and there's just nuts, so things happening, everybody's unsettled and, and you know, anxious and wondering what's going to happen. Now more than ever is the time for us to tap into the wisdom of Hashem, to, to, to live his word louder and prouder and more authentically than we ever have before. Because whether God is telling us exactly what's going to happen in the election or in the months following the election or the next 10 years or how our grandkids are going to have it really makes no difference. Not to say the voice of God is not important. But what do we do with the, the knowledge and the wisdom that we have? What are we doing with the little that we've given? Because him to, to, him, to him who much is given, much is required. What are we doing with what we have already? Are we bearing his image are we living subversively, not through hollering and screaming and military might and violence, but through our lives? I hope this was challenging to you. Look forward to talking with you guys again next week. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.